Well, praise God. If you brought a Bible tonight, open it up to the book of Acts. We're finding ourselves in Acts chapter 22. Where we left off, uh, we left off with an arrest, uh, kind of a violent arrest. It wasn't just a, wasn't like somebody showed up at your workplace and said, please come with us, Mr. Paul. It was a seizing at the temple, um, almost like a riot, whereas so bad, if you'll remember that the Roman soldiers had to come and get Paul and carry him out of the building. That's how intense, that's how violent the arrest was. Anybody been arrested that violently? Anybody been? Where actually the RCMP had to come rescue you from the mob. That's what happened here. The Apostle Paul's about to stand trial, um, but he's not standing trial in front of the Romans per se. He's standing in trial. Uh, this is kind of an unofficial trial because what's happened where we left off last week was that he'd been seized in the temple. The Romans come and help him get out because they don't want a riot on their hands. And Paul says, can I address these people? Now, I don't know. If I were him, I'd just want to get out of there, wait for everybody to cool down, you know, pump their stress balls a little bit, give, the, give you know, 20 seconds of cool down time or something. But the, Paul wanted to get back. He said, can I address them? Can I talk to them? And the, remember, the soldier looked at him and said, you speak Greek? Are, are you? Oh, so you're not the Egyptian that led a revolt here a few years ago. You're, you're somebody different. He says, no, that's not who I am. I'm, I'm, and he begins to, he shortly gives him a, an example of who he is. But then he's about to talk to the gathering of Jewish elders and the mob and all of these people. And uh, the, the accusation against him is, number one, that he's speaking against Judaism. Um, Another bit of slander that he's facing is they're accusing him of bringing a Gentile into the temple, which was not allowed. And the truth of the matter was he was with his friend Trophimus, who was a Gentile. They happened to be in the city of Jerusalem together. And so people just jumped to the conclusion that he must have brought Trophimus into the temple, which wasn't true. Uh, But they were about to kill this guy right on the spot till the Romans came, rescued him. And he says, wait a minute, can I just go back and can I address them for a minute? Because of the charges against him, you're going to notice that as he defends himself, and he doesn't have to defend himself in front of these people, because these aren't, this isn't the law. These aren't the, they might have some degree of authority, but they don't have the authority to, to throw him in prison or to kill him. But he still wants to defend himself in front of what may have been, you know, the very people he went to school with. And I'm not talking about like high school or things like that. Of course, they had a different school uh, education system than we did, but this is, this is a guy who was raised to be a rabbi. He was raised to be uh, a teacher of the law. He was raised to be somebody important in Jewish circles. He was taught by G- Gamaliel himself, and Gamaliel was a very well-respected rabbinical teacher. So Paul might have known some of these people that he's having to defend himself to, which kind of made them angrier at him because they feel betrayed. They feel like he has, he has turned his back on the faith of his fathers. And he's about to explain, I haven't turned my back on anything. See, because Jesus was not a revolt against Judaism. Jesus was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. He was the fulfillment of, what they, of the law and the prophets. Jesus was not coming against the law and the prophets. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And so uh, these Christians, these first Christians, even though there were many Christians who, be, who believed from the Gentiles, these first followers of the way, 
came out of the Jewish uh, synagogues and, and, and came out of these congregations, and, and they didn't consider themselves not to be Jews anymore. They just considered themselves to be Jews who'd found the Messiah. And now Paul's having to defend himself on this charge, and here's what he says in chapter 22, verse 1. He says, brethren and fathers, so note already, these are the guys that want to kill him, but he's being very respectful to them. He says, brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet, and he said, so all of a sudden he's got their attention. He speaks Hebrew to them. He speaks in their own, you know, their native tongue, and so they listen up. And he says, I'm a Jew, I'm born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I was brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. Do you know you can be zealous for God and just still be flat out wrong? Like, this, is, this was his experience. He was the most zealous of all of them for God, but, but zeal without knowledge, you know, doesn't lead to a good place, Right? So it says here, he says, uh, I was zealous for God just as you are all today, and I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, as also the high priests and all the councils of the elders can testify. So these guys know him and he knows them. And he's looking and he says, you guys know me. You know that I was, I was your, biggest, your biggest zealot. I was the one throwing people in prison. I was the one persecuting them. I was the one hunting them down. You know that? He says, all the elders and the high priest can testify to this. He said, from them, I also received letters to the brethren, and I started off to, for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. You know, this is interesting because as Paul was the first person to really intensely persecute the church, um, and of course, his Jewish friends, he would have been known as, as Saul. Uh, Paul was mainly what he was known as amongst the Gentiles, but his Hebrew name was Shaul, Saul. Um, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and if the most famous person of the tribe of Benjamin in all of Jewish history was Saul, the first king of Israel. So, so that's a proud name. So to him, to them, they, he still would have been known as Saul. And, and he explains that he didn't just throw people in prison in Jerusalem. He actually hunted them down. The word for persecute in the Bible means to hunt somebody down, to go to chase after them, to pursue them. It doesn't just mean that you have a problem with someone. It means that you so disagree with them, that you so think you're right and they're wrong, that you're going to hunt them down. And that's exactly what he did. So once he had harassed all the Christians in Jerusalem, which the Bible tells us, and we, those of you who have been with us, earlier in the book of Acts, it says that's why the, the believers spread out of Jerusalem. The whole church scattered out of Jerusalem because of one man and his, his vendetta to throw them all in prison or have them killed. When he had thoroughly disrupted the, the, the followers in Jerusalem, he got permission to go to Damascus to go hunt some of them down. It's interesting that his experience with Jesus happens when he's about to do the most egregious, just terrible thing against Jesus, that he's on his way to find more of these believers and to hunt them down and to separate them from their families and to put them to death if necessary. And on the way to Damascus, he's gonna tell us his story again. 
There are three times in the book of Acts that we hear this story. The first time, we hear it from Luke, the guy that's writing this. Luke, the historian, writing what happened to Saul on that road. The other two times, including this one, we see him defending himself and telling his story, telling his testimony of how Jesus found him on that road. The first time is this one where he's talking to Jewish people primarily. The second time, he's talking to some Gentile authorities. And so a couple of the details are different. I mean, there's nothing that contradicts itself, but he brings out certain things. He accents and highlights certain things to, these group, to this group and accents and highlights certain things to another group depending on who he's talking to. So here you've got to understand, this guy was trained by the best of the best and he's about to give his defense in front of the, the Sanhedrin, in front of these leaders and elders and uh, he's going to do it with... All of his training, he's going to do it as somebody who understands them very well. He begins to tell them about what happened on the way to Damascus. He says, I was on my way, and I was approaching Damascus about noontime. And he said, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me. Consider how bright. He's, he's there around noon in the Middle East. Sun's at the highest place in the sky. It's as bright as it could be. Imagine how bright that light must have been for him to say there was a very bright light all around me. In the middle of the noonday, this light was brighter than all of that, brighter than the sun. He says, it flashed all around me, from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you're persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure. But they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, get up and go into Damascus. And there you will be told of all that has been appointed for you to do. But since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me. And I came into Damascus. Think about how humbling this must have been. This man who had all this authority, he brought his henchmen with him. And at that moment, he's knocked on the ground. The other people here, what, what they hear, I don't know. They might have heard the same thing that the crowds heard when God spoke uh, and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased over Jesus. And some of them heard the voice and others just thought it was thunder. They might have just thought there was some weird thunder going on, but they all saw the light and they saw Saul fall down and, and look up and start talking to this light or talking to the sky. They don't know. Then they, all, they, all they know is he's blind now and he has to be led into the city. How humbling is that? This proud man is now brought onto the ground and he's brought into the city having to be led by the hand. It says, a certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of the law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing near to me, he said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him. It, we find out from the other, pla other places in the book of Acts, he doesn't tell this group that very detail, but we find out in other um, uh, tellings of this story that Ananias himself had to be visited by God. And God said, this guy's going to come and visit you. And Ananias doesn't really want to have anything to do with him because Saul's reputation has preceded him. Uh, but he's obedient to God, thank God. So he knows that Saul is coming. 
Can you imagine how much this would have snapped you out of your present reality? You've not only been knocked on the ground, you've been struck blind, somebody's talking to you, and you know that they are somehow the Lord, and he says he's Jesus. He tells you to go into town, and this guy's waiting for you. Isn't that odd? You knock on his door, and he says, hi, Brother Saul, receive your sight. I mean, this is, the, this is weirder than the twilight zone so far. And he says, at that very time, I looked up at him and I could see him. He tells us in another, another telling of this that scales fell off his eyes and he looks up. And, and he said, the God of our fathers, Ananias said this, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. Do you hear that? What a powerful thing. What, how big is the mercy of God? Come on. I want you to think of the kind of people today in 2015 that we could equate with a guy like Saul. People that are hunting down Christians. People that were hunting, hunting you down and your family members and throwing you in prison. In fact, Paul admits it later that he, he had some of them killed. Stephen being one of them. Can you imagine what kind of person that would be? in our day and age, and how we would not expect that person to be the next great preacher of the gospel. We wouldn't expect God to have this much mercy on the man. But our, the mercy of our God is bigger than we can comprehend. And the plans of God are way larger than our minds. So here God, Ananias says, God has appointed you. You're, you're going to see him, you're going to hear him, and he's got a job for you. This is all happening, bam, 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 just real quick. And he says, for you will be a witness for him to all men of what you've seen and heard. Now, why do you delay? In other words, what are you waiting for? Get up and be baptized. Wash away your sins and calling on his name. Because really, we know, according to the scripture, that uh, it's whoever calls upon the name of the Lord that's saved, right? So here he's saying, what are you waiting for? Imagine how fast this is all happening. He got, he's on his way to Damascus. He gets knocked down. He gets blinded. Jesus talks to him. He figures out, I've, I've been on the wrong team the whole time. He gets to Ananias' house. The guy's waiting for him. The guy says, Brother Saul, I'm here to, I'm here to pray over you. Receive your sight. He's a, his eyesight comes back. And Ananias, before they can really get into a deep conversation, says, well, what are you waiting for? Go get baptized. Just in shock here. You're just, okay, okay. You know, can you imagine? Maybe you felt like your first days as a believer were kind of like this. Just friend invited me to your church. I just, I like the music, but what's going on here? All of a sudden, somebody calls you down. You find yourself at the front. What am I doing here? And this is exactly what's happening to him in such hyperspeed. I love Ananias' attitude. What are you waiting for? What's the delay? What's the delay, guy? You want to just sit around here and look at colors and play I Spy now that you got your sight back? Or do you want to just go do something with your life? Okay. It says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I fell into a trance. And I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. 
And when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I was standing by approving. And I was watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. They listened to him up to this statement. Then they raised their voices and they said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. As they were crying out, throwing off their cloaks and tossing dust in the air. I don't know what good that did, but they did it. The commander ordered them to be brought into the barracks, stating that he should be examined by scourging so that he might find out the reason why they were shouting against them that way. Good old Romans. They just figure if we whip a guy enough, he'll tell us the truth eventually. He may very well be innocent. We'll only know by whipping him. It's the only way we're going to get to the bottom of this. Let's examine him by scourging. Thank God for Canada, right? Romans, you seem like a nice guy. We'll find out. We'll find out the truth. Just take your coat off and we'll whip you some. We'll see what comes out. All right? Sound good to you? Sound good to me? Just be thankful we're not chopping your head off right, at, right on the spot. We're going to give you a chance. But we're going to stop there for a minute. And I, I want to focus on because, ne- you know, the next time we address this, we'll talk about um, some of the things that happened after this. But I just want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, about the impact that that one day had on, or how many days, I don't know, he was in Jerusalem. But the impact of that experience and everything that Jesus said, either directly to him or through Ananias, I want you to see the impact on his life that um, right away, God doesn't mince any words with him about what this is going to mean. Because you can see, at first, Saul seems to think, they'll, they'll believe me. They'll know I was one of them. You know, God is, the, Jesus is saying to him, get out of town. They won't accept your testimony. And Saul's arguing with him. They know I, I was there. I was the biggest guy beating on the Christians. I was there. I was looking on approvingly, holding their coats while they stoned Stephen to death. And Jesus says, get out of town. It's interesting, it's the same Jesus that told him to now to go to Jerusalem. It's the same Jesus that told him, they still won't accept your testimony, but you must go and testify for me. Obviously, at that point in time, it was not Saul's time. It wasn't his time to die. It wasn't his time to be arrested. God had a different plan for him. I'm going to send you all these places first. You need to get out of town while this situation cools down a bit. I get stuck on that statement by Ananias because Ananias just boils it down to the simple truth. If God spoke to you and he told you what you're supposed to do, what are you waiting for? And I just think, well, if anybody had a reason to say, can I just take a couple of days, it would have been Saul. You understand my world has been flipped here. Like, I mean, I don't even know which way's up anymore. But what are you waiting for? Go on. Go on and go on and repent. Go on and get saved. Go on and do whatever the Lord's called you to do. And I want you to see the attitude that Saul had. Even as God is saying, they won't accept you. I got a mission for you. Go. That somehow he recognized, and you see it all through his writings, he recognized how much mercy he'd been shown. And for the rest of his life, he did not consider his life belonging to him. For the rest of his life, 
He used terms like this. I mean, this is the guy who wrote, we are no longer slaves, but we have received the spirit of adoption in which we cry out, Abba, which was the Hebrew way of saying, Daddy, Abba, Father. So he understood that he was now part of the family of God. He was a son. He had rights. He had a place in the family. But he also, over and over again, described himself as a slave, as a bondservant, saying, I, I, I don't have my own choice here. I've given my life. I've laid it down. I have given my life to Jesus. I am going to make myself a slave to his will, and I'm going to make myself a slave to anyone he sends me to. I'll, I'll serve them even if I'm better than them. I'll, I'll, treat them like, I'll treat them like they are uh, Jesus himself because I want them to receive the gospel. When you understand the depths, number one, of God's mercy for you, number two, the significance of being called into the family of God, and number three, the significance of his call on your life, then the question that remains is, what are you waiting for? And what choice do you have? but to do exactly what he's put you on the planet to do. And when many people hear this, they say, okay, are we all supposed to do what you're doing? And I say, no. Some of you, God has called you to the very job you work at right now. Because you know what? They may not come to a place like this, but, they, but you can go to a place like there. You know, we had, a, we had a Bible study last Thursday night in Loon Lake. And there was a lady... We had it at her house. There was a lady who um, had had cancer and it had gone into remission. But her husband was so fearful that he wouldn't allow her to go outside of the house anymore. And so she was so desperate for fellowship and she was so desperate to, to somehow sense that, you know, she, 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 wasn't, she wasn't somebody that came regularly to church before that or anything, but, but she really wanted to know God. She really wanted to get closer to Jesus. And so she said to us on Thursday night, we, we came to her house and had our Bible study there. And she said, so close to tears, she explained to us why she couldn't come to church. She said, I'm not allowed to go. I have to stay here. But she said, I said to God, God, if I can't come to where your house is, I want you to come to my house. And you just understand that where the people of God go, there his presence goes. There his anointing goes. There his healing goes with them. And this, like I said earlier, this building isn't church. The church is the family and the people of God. And wherever God has placed you, you have been called to bring His presence into that place, into that space in Lloydminster or the region surrounding, into those areas. That's where you're meant to be. Now, maybe you're not where you're meant to be. And maybe my, what I would say to you in that case is, what are you waiting for? Why waste your time doing something that's not the will of God? Why waste your time just living the same old, going the same direction as everyone else in the world when they don't know where they're going? See, you don't make fun of the kid who's playing with the, the stick and going to hit the pinata. You don't make fun of him when he's, or, or playing pin the tail on the donkey. You don't make fun of him when he's blindfolded and they've spun him around and he's walking around weird and funny and, he, and he's not going in any discernible direction and he's running into the crowd with a sharp pin. It's a really smart game to play with kids, isn't it? He's running into the crowd with a sharp pin. You laugh, but you understand why he's doing that. He's got a blindfold on. He's been spun around. He doesn't know where he's going. But it is a little odd when you have your eyes wide open and you're still 
walking around strangely and, and, and with the pen in your hand and walking into the crowd, poking people by accident. Suddenly, that's not funny anymore. Suddenly, we're worried about you. This is what it's like for those that don't know Jesus. The Bible says the God of this world has blinded their eyes so that they wouldn't see the light of the gospel. When someone's in darkness, you don't blame them for bumping into a door. But it is odd when you and your desperate efforts to fit in say, I guess this is what we're doing. We're bumping into doors now. And you have your eyes wide open and you still bump into the door and you still wander around like you don't know what you're doing. And you have perfect eyesight. That's a little strange, isn't it? So it's not strange that the world is going in a direction that's, hurt, that's, that's harmful. It's not strange that the world's going in a direction that doesn't seem to lead to a good place. It is strange, though, when believers, in their efforts to fit in, walk the same way as the world walks, contrary to what they know is right, contrary to the will of God, contrary to His voice. And I'm not just talking about sin. I'm talking about when you know what God's called you to and you still walk the opposite direction like Jonah running to Tarsus instead of going to Nineveh where God told him to be. Guys, I don't want to be the guy in the boat that gets, gets to be Jonah. I, I'd rather be the guy that says, okay, I'll go where you tell me to go. I want you to read something in 1 Corinthians 9. It'll give you a little insight into what, how Paul feels about the great mercy that's been shown to him and what he figures his life is, is meant for after this. He said in verse 16, he's explaining why, he's, he's explaining why scripturally it is right for a minister of the gospel to be supported in the ministry. And he, he explains it. He says, even Jesus told us that. But he said in this case, now we know in other cases, he, he allowed them to support him. But in the case of the Corinthians, he said, I wanted you to know that I was doing this for free so you wouldn't think I was in it for your money. And he said, in verse 16, he says, for if I preach the gospel, I've got nothing to boast of. For I am under compulsion. For woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge. So as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I might win more. I want you to see how he, he views his life. And he views it a little different than a lot of other people do. Because as far as he's concerned, he has no choice but to preach the gospel. That's not even an option. Look what he says. He says, he says I'm under compulsion to preach. Why is he under compulsion to preach? Is he, is he under compulsion to preach? Because that's just what believers do. No, he's under compulsion to preach because when Jesus met him on the road that day, Jesus said, you're going to testify for me. So he took that so seriously that for the rest of his life, he said, I don't have a choice. He saved my life. He had every right to kill me on the spot, and he didn't. You might say, well, that's how bad he was. We're all in the same boat. Wages of sin is death. We all sinned. God had every right to strike us down, yet he didn't. He loves us. 
He loves even people that turn their back to Him. He had every right to destroy the world with a flood again, but He didn't. Instead, He sent His own Son to die for that world. And Paul understands this, and he says this. He says, i got to preach. I'm under compulsion. I have to preach. And he says, woe is me if I don't. So he goes, instead, he says, there's no reward for me doing what I have to do. So he says, I'm going to take it another step. I'm going to do it without charge so that I can get some reward out of this. I'm going to do it voluntarily. He says, if I do it voluntarily, I've got a reward. But if, I, if I'm forced to do it, I'm just, I'm just a, a steward. I'm just a servant. Do you understand what he's saying here? He says, if I can do this willingly with a willing heart and a joyful attitude, at least there's a reward for me. But none of these options is for me not to do what God had called me to do. I, none of my, my option is not, do I preach or do I not preach? He says, that's not even an option. I must preach. Woe is me if I don't. But at least I can preach voluntarily. With, I can do it willingly. And I, I, I can do it uh, out of my own pocket so there's a reward for me. That's how, he, that's how seriously he viewed the call of God in his life. I love it when he says in the, in the book of Philippians, he's deciding, and I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but he's deciding whether he should live or die. Right as he's writing the letter, it seems like he's making the decision. He's in one of the most terrible, horrific prisons that the Roman Empire has. And he's allowed to write a letter. He's allowed to dictate one, and he writes it, and he sends it with a, a good servant to go bring to the church in Philippi. He says to them, he says, I don't know whether I should stay or sh I should go. But then he says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So he says, there's two options for me here. I can live, and my life is Christ. My life is wrapped up in Him. My life is wrapped up in His plan and purpose. My life is wrapped up in the gospel. He says, if I die, it's gain. I win because I get to be with Jesus. And I get to just be free from this torture that I'm dealing with right now. But I'm so in awe of the fact that for him, there was only two options. Do you notice he doesn't say, I got three options. I live and keep preaching the gospel. I live, I live unto Christ. I die. Or I could retire early. You know, let the, just go somewhere where they don't know my name. Chill out a little bit. And you know what? Thank you for the offering. It's going to help me to survive for a while. I'll get back into tent making or something like that. You know what? I'll be a good guy. I'll be nice. I'll make, I'll glorify God by making quality tents. How about that? For him... He didn't give himself that option. He said, I'm gonna, either, if I'm going to live, it's going to be unto Christ. If I die, psh, I win. What if those were the only options for us? If I live, I'm just going to live all out for Jesus. In whatever area he puts me in, I'm going to live all out for Jesus. And if I die, psh, that's going to be great too. But I'm not going before my time. I'll, I'll, as long as I'm on the planet, I'm living full out for Jesus. See, what if we lived that way? Here's the catch. People tell you, or you might even think, that sounds like a really rough and tough way to live. And you know, some elements of that are tough. Some elements aren't easy in that way of life. But I believe something. 
I believe that we've been tricked and fooled into what really makes us happy and what really satisfies us. We've been tricked by commercials. We've been tricked by our upbringing. We've been tricked into thinking that somehow if we get these things or get to this position, we'll be happy. And even when the proof in front of us is contrary to that, every day we see people who achieve everything they've been chasing and they want to kill themselves. And we're surprised. And it's not just a rare occurrence. Is it rare for these people to get divorced? No. Is it rare for them to overdose? No, it's not rare. It's common. And we've yet not gotten a clue about the fact that they didn't get happy. But the greatest, the most joyful person on the planet, according to the Bible, according to the book of Hebrews, the man who was anointed with the oil of gladness above everyone else was Jesus Christ. The man who said, I don't do what I want to do. I do what the Father sent me to do. You see, Jesus was fully God, and yet he was fully man. And while he showed us the Father, he also showed us something else. He showed us what mankind was supposed to look like. He showed us humanity. He showed us what we were really designed to be. He showed us a glimpse of the garden before sin. He showed us how we really could be satisfied. And that is by saying, I trust that my Father in heaven has a better plan for me than I could dream up for myself. I trust that his will for my life is better than my will or my mom's will or my wife's will or my friend's will. I trust that his will is above all. I trust that that even when, when my idea is different than his idea, that he will always be proven right. And when you can trust that and say, well, let me just jump off the cliff, not literally, But let me just go full out and say, I'll follow you wherever you go. Whatever you send me, whatever you tell me to do, I'll just do it. What if we lived our life that way? Some of you have already taken steps in that direction. Some of you are sprinting. Some of you are running. Some of you are crawling, but you're heading in that direction. And and to everyone else, I'd say, what are you waiting for? Saul, what are you waiting for? Why the delay? Go get saved. And go do whatever Jesus told you to do. When Jesus tells you to get out of the city, don't argue with him. Get out of the city. When he tells you to come back, no matter how many people pulled on Paul, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, I got to go. Jesus told me to go. (laughs) I mean, I know you love me. And I know you're telling me what's going to happen if I go. But Jesus, Jesus told me to go. And hey, if he's with me, what do I have to fear? What am I waiting for? What are we waiting for? Are you waiting for the moment where God puts you in a trance and like a zombie, you walk to work with your eyes rolled back in your head and you just automatically do things he makes you do like a puppet? Because that's not going to happen. The only time Paul went to a trance here is is long enough for Jesus to look him in the eyes and go, this is what you're supposed to do. Jesus didn't make him do anything. He just had a vision where Jesus told him what to do. My point there is, I hope I didn't lose you there, but my point is, if you're waiting for God to force your hand, that's rarely going to happen. And if it has to go that far, that's not a good position to be in. You notice the scripture says, humble yourself. It's much better to humble yourself than to be humbled. You don't want to be humbled. That's not a pleasant experience. So if you're waiting for God to force you into what he's called you to do, 
I don't see it in Scripture. What I do see is God intervening in your life like He already has and speaking to you and you obeying that voice. You obeying that leading. You might say tonight, I've never, Jesus has never appeared to me in such a dramatic way. But I'll tell you something. Paul didn't have this when he first started out. He received it right away. But before he was a believer, he didn't have the Holy Spirit residing inside of him. And you do. And there is a steady, undeniable leading of the Holy Spirit in your life that you must obey. And God will speak to you in different ways. Number one, He speaks to you by His Word, doesn't He? He speaks to you often through other people. He speaks to you by leading you, by pulling you, by, you know, by, by drawing you in this direction. He speaks to you through your spirit. You hear that voice. Some of you might have an experience where you hear like an audible voice. Some of you might say, I even saw something. But most of the time in your life, it will be the steady leading of the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, the Scripture says today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Because the question that's going to happen, the question that's going to come up is, do I listen? Do I go where He's telling me to go? Do I do I go where he's leading me to go or do I resist and have my own plan for my life? Because the end result of resisting is that the more you resist, the quieter that voice gets because your heart becomes hardened and you don't want to have a hardened heart. Every time you hear the voice of God, you either are changed by it or you're hardened by it. And I pray that you'll be the kind of people that are soft. If you say right now, I have a hard heart, I know I have a hard heart, I know I, I've been resisting God for so long, then my, the good news I get to tell you tonight is that the hardest of hearts he can soften in a moment. He did it for the Apostle Paul. He did it for this man right here. If you will humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt you. If you'll surrender to Jesus, he'll lead you, he'll guide you, he'll take care of you, and there's not a thing in your life you've got to figure out for yourself if you're willing to be led by the Spirit of God. Does that mean you turn your brain off? No. Thank God for your brain. You're going to need it. It means that your brain, your mind, is submitted to the will of God. He's not looking for mindless drones. He's looking for willing and obedient followers who also happen to be sons and daughters. I'm a son. You're a son or a daughter. But we all have the option and the opportunity to make ourselves bondservants to Jesus Christ. That is the way to be satisfied. That is the way to live. That is the way to have joy abundant. I think one of the things that many people don't understand is how much, how much he loves you. That he's not just using you like uh, cannon fodder. And says, well, I can spare some of those. That guy's just a, that guy's a bit of an idiot. I can spare him. Just send him. See what happens. That for each individual, he, just as we read on Sunday, as God spoke to Jeremiah, he said, I've known you since you were in the womb. Do you, do you, even your mother didn't know you that well. I've known you since you were in the womb, and I formed you, and I set you apart. You might say, well, that's just Jeremiah. And I, I'd, I'd counter that by saying, no, that's all of us. Every single one of us, he knows us. 
individually. He knew you before you knew yourself. And he, he planned your life. And he said, I've, I've got something for them to do. But it's not automatically going to happen. It's going to take obedience. It's going to take faith. And once again, it's a simple sentence that Ananias said. I don't know where he got the guts to say it like that, but he just said, what are you waiting for? Why the delay? Why the delay? What are we waiting for? When God speaks, the earth shakes. I believe he's looking for a group of people that respond quickly to his voice. Delayed obedience is pretty close to disobedience, and sometimes it straight out is. Now, if you've missed it, if you say God spoke to me about something a while ago and I let it go, I believe that God's always got another on-ramp for you. You know when your GPS says recalculating? Sometimes it sounds a little sassy when she says it. A little, little like, hmm, check the attitude, Siri, you know. But even when you miss your turn, it's automatically recalculating another turn. The good thing is God's not surprised by your missed turns. He saw that. He still called you. He still gave you the opportunity. He'll give you another one too if you'll surrender and you'll just say, okay, I believe you. You probably got a better plan than I do. What am I waiting for? Why not just go full out right now? Why not just say, all right, you win. I'm following you and I'm not turning back. That's exactly what this man did. Once he turned, he didn't look back again. Do you realize how easy it would have been to say, people don't like me, people hate me, this is tough, let somebody else do it who doesn't have such a reputation. But he didn't consider that an option and neither should you. Whatever you've been called to do, whatever you've been led to do, and you know what, can I just say, rather than you putting that on such a pedestal and saying, it's, it's either what I'm doing now or, you know, sometimes when you, when you feel like God's leading you to do something, you see it in the largest terms, you see the end of the race. And that's usually what stops us from going there is we, we just go, well, I don't know how that's ever going to happen. But I'll tell you, most of the time, it's God leading you step by step. Sometimes you don't even see anywhere close to the end. Sometimes if he gives you a glimpse, don't try to get there on your own. Just take it step by step. What, did God, what is God leading you to do today? What is he leading you to do to tomorrow? That's a tongue twister. What is he leading you to do tomorrow? What is he leading you to do this week? Where can you start right now? Rather than just saying, well, it's either, it's either what I'm doing now or what I'm planning to do in 10 years, start where you are. Whatever he's called you to do, start where you are and just say, from now on, it's your will, not mine. That is the true way to be human. It's the true way to live. It's the true way that Jesus showed us. And the servant is not greater than their master. He really did ace the test. He showed us what it really was like to live a life full out. What are we waiting for? Stand up with me.